podcast. We are a church in Birmingham, Alabama, and our aim is to be a diverse family of believers living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. This sermon is part of our Advent 2022 series, Far As the Curse is Found. If you would like to find out more information about Emmanuel, visit our website at emmanuelbirmingham.com. Thank you for listening and Merry Christmas. Our text this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10, and it reads this way, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with uh, the recompense recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their hearts. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Uh, week three of Advent, um, and I don't, I don't know about you, but... Uh, for some reason, this Christmas season for, for me, for our families, felt a lot busier than normal. Maybe, I mean, maybe it's all in my head. I don't know. Maybe it's, this is normal. I don't know. But I found it difficult to um, stop and, and just ponder uh, Christ and incarnation and, and, uh, and the wonder of Christ becoming flesh. And, uh, but it's something I'm continuing to strive to do, and I pray you are as well, just in the busyness of the season. I just want you to, just, if you can, just take some time just to pause and, and read through Luke you know, 1, 2. Uh, read Matthew 1 and 2. Um, just read these texts and just sit with the wonder and the awe of this season. So I'm hoping to do that. I hope you will do that as well. So this week we uh, <clears throat> lit the joy candle, only pink candle up here, which is the liturgical color for joy. I didn't know that until recently sometimes called the shepherd's candle, because joy and fear, uh, honestly, is what the shepherds felt, that first, you know, appearance of the angels declaring that Christ had been born. And so we're going to be talking about joy today. It's joy and gladness from our text this morning. But before we do, I want us to pray together. I want us to ask the Lord to even now begin just cultivating that joy and gladness in our own hearts as we look at his word. So let's pray together. Father, I... 
I do pray that the wonder and the awe of this season, uh, one that I have now experienced 37 times uh, in my life, that it will never grow old, that it will never grow stale, that I won't forget it in all the hustle and bustle of shopping and parties and Christmas specials and uh, parades and all the other things. But Lord, I just pray that you give me the grace and the, the wherewithal just to pause and to consider the mystery and the wonder and the awe of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. At the hands of the baby in the manger, the hands that Mary held would one day bear the nails that save us. So Lord, I pray now that the wonder of that just produces in us joy and gladness. I pray that today as we look at your word, that you, O oh God, just open up our eyes and ears to see and believe the truth of the gospel. May we walk in it as your people. May we walk in it, joyfully walk in it, not out of duty, but out of delight. And I pray all these things to the glory of your name, Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> I, think, um, I think many of you would agree with me that joy in this life is very elusive. I think that gladness and joy, honestly, are probably two of the most elusive things in this life. You know, it's like those moments where we think we have a hold of it, you know, where we think that, man, if it could just stay like this forever, everything would be okay. And those moments where we, we think we've got it, as soon as we've, we realize what's going on, that this is true joy and true gladness, it's like it just kind of slips away from us. It's once again just slipped through our fingers and the pains of real life kind of creep back in again. You know, joy is something we get tastes of. You know, it's something that we all in this room have at varying times experienced. You know, whether it's called joy or gladness or delight, you know, there's many synonyms for it. You know, God has in his grace created us as his creatures who yearn and crave and need for our flourishing moments of joy. Moments of gladness. That's why God in his common grace towards us, towards all of humanity, not just believers, but all of humanity, Christian and non-Christian alike, he gives us the ability to enjoy things, right? I mean, each of us in this room have different things that we take pleasure in. Some of us enjoy being artsy, you know, painting, making poetry, pottery, baking, using our hands to create things. You know, some of us enjoy being outdoors, you know, hiking, canoeing, camping, fishing, hunting, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. You know, some of us enjoy exercising. Some of us enjoy a good meal, good drink, the company of friends. Some of us enjoy being alone. A good book, a good cup of coffee, our families, playing volleyball. You know, some of us, every single person in this room takes pleasure and enjoys things because we're created for joy. We're created for delight. And in that pleasure and in that delight and the things God has made, the intent of those created things was not to be an end in themselves. But the intent of God giving us those things was not to enjoy creating or creation or books or good food. We don't enjoy those things for the sake of those things in themselves. We delight in them as a means to delight in the giver of those things. You know, the author of the ultimate story, the maker of the world, the giver of these pleasures that we now enjoy. You know, to enjoy anything in creation as an end in itself is, not, is to not bring delight or pleasure to its fullness. 
You hit a ceiling in that pleasure, in that delight. It's not to experience true joy that comes from delighting in the God who provided all those things for us, who is the source of our joy. So as Christians, we take all of those things we enjoy in this life to their proper end, and we delight in our God, who is the source of great joy. And out of his great love for us, he has given not just objects, but he's given us his very self to delight in. But as Christians, I mean, we, we know these things. Do we not? We know these things. Everything I just said, we'd all agree with to some extent, for this is what the Word of God tells us is true. But how often do we find, even in the most faithful Christ follower, a daily struggle to fight for joy? To fight for delight. You know, you think joy in this world for the believer would just come naturally that it would come easy. And yes, you know, by God's grace through Christ, by means of the Holy Spirit, true joy does come for us as believers. But why does it still seem so hard to find? And then once it's found, why does it still remain so elusive? Just almost, almost like it's just out of reach sometimes. You know, I venture to say that many of us in this room have had or maybe currently are having just bouts with finding gladness this holiday season. This Christmas, I mean, this is the season that all our troubles should seem so far away, right? But for many of us, I throw myself in that category, this year's been a year of struggle and difficulty, a year of transitions in many ways. Maybe we've lost people we loved this year, and we're remembering them this holiday season. Maybe it's a year of more struggles in your marriage or more tough bouts with your children and and home this Christmas season is a lot different than home last Christmas season. And maybe it's been a difficult year financially and, and this Christmas feels a little more scarce than Christmas last year. Maybe your calendar this December has been filled with doctor's appointments for treatment rather than parties or celebrations. Maybe you're just stressed out and anxious. Maybe you're just spread thin. And the joy of the season has evaded your heart this year. I don't know. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. But for a lot of us, gladness and joy is tough to come by right now. But Isaiah 35 is a chapter all about transformation. It speaks of a God who takes even the most dry and arid places and he remakes them into places of beauty and flourishing. Because that's what our Lord does. In those moments where there is a famine of joy, he enters into our famine and he produces a feast of delight. Chapter 34 of Isaiah, if we were to read through that, the chapter right before ours for today, this is a chapter of God's judgment against his enemies. And then our chapter for today speaks of his deliverance of his people. And these two chapters together, chapters 34 and 35, they form the apex of the prophecies of Isaiah up to this point in the book of Isaiah. And all the transformation the Lord brings throughout this entire chapter, there's one common theme that runs throughout the 10 verses. And it's the theme that God promises 
to transform our temporary sadness into everlasting gladness. That he promises to transform our temporary sadness into everlasting gladness. So how does he do it? Let's look at our text. Read with me again verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And then skip down to verse 6. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Just this place of flourishing. The first way God transforms our sadness into gladness based off these verses is he transforms our barrenness to abundance. Our barrenness to abundance. Chapter 34, Isaiah described, the chapter right before today, this chapter we're studying today, he described utter devastation of the earth and the wicked of the earth. But here, Isaiah describes a coming time when God will transform death and devastation into life and fruitfulness. That God makes something new out of something that was broken. That he takes fallow, parched fields and brings forth beauty. You know, there's no reason to believe that this prophecy couldn't be literal and metaphorical at the same time. It's a lot of times the nature of prophecy. You know, we talked before the prophet's use of pictures and images to communicate deeper truths. Sometimes those images are literal things that will happen. Sometimes those images are simply metaphors of something deeper that is going to happen. I truly believe this prophecy is both. That yes, God will one day completely renew and transform the earth back to what it was before sin. And at the same time, he'll renew and transform us in much the same way. Now, the earth and our lives have been so marked by devastation that they will be clothed with the glory of Lebanon and the beauty and majesty of Carmel and Sharon, these these places that for Israel represented pictures of comfort and familiarity and home. For the people of Judah. But the beauty and majesty God would restore is not for the sake of admiring the beauty and the majesty of that which is restored. But the restored land and our restored lives are intended to drive us to delight in our Creator, to see, to look at verse 2, the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And when this happens, that we, to use the language of the text here, rejoice with joy and singing. But let's extend the metaphor here just a bit. Now the picture here, one of, of barrenness to abundance. A field moving from parched places to life-giving places is something that we can all resonate with. For some of us, this metaphor is literal. No, this year's been some, uh, for us, some of us, has been a year of literal barrenness. You know, maybe there are struggles in this room to get pregnant. Maybe there have been miscarriages this last year. Struggles in the courts of adoption or foster care. 
the grief that seems to recur on a regular basis. Women in this room longing to be mothers and men in this room longing to be fathers. It just still hasn't happened yet. You know, I, I remember mine and Christine's struggle with barrenness, infertility, in our own lives. You know, just a few days ago on December 7th, in 2018 was the day we got the call about Riley, four years ago, which is kind of hard to believe. But Christine and I at that point had been in the adoption process for a few years, and learning even during that adoption process that we had our own bouts with infertility, struggles to get pregnant, and I was yearning to be a dad, and Christine was yearning to be a mom, but for some reason the Lord just had not given us that desire yet in our own lives, and I remember at that time, I, was, uh, I like to read the newspaper, like the physical newspaper, because um, I'm an old man. And I subscribed at the time to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We were in Atlanta. And I remember reading on multiple occasions stories of just parents that were arrested for neglect or abuse or fill in the blank. And I'm sitting here reading this stuff, and I'm thinking to myself, Lord, you'll give kids to these people? You won't give a kid to me? Just one kid? I mean, there's a literal time of barrenness. And I remember, I remember that we would come to holiday seasons during that time, and no baby would be there once again. I remember, and I would comfort Christine and myself by just saying, surely by next Christmas we'll have a baby. Surely by next Christmas there'll be another one of us. But Christmas would come, and there would be no baby. And that would happen again and again and again. Four years ago, just a few days ago, we were nearing once again another Christmas with no baby when we got the call that a little girl had been born who needed a mom and dad. Would we like to be her mom and dad? And that week, after we brought Riley home, there's a couple, an older couple, that walked with us a lot of this journey. And prayed for us a lot, gave to us a lot, were very kind along the way. They were an adopted family as well, and they came over to the house, and they brought over a Christmas ornament that is literally on our tree to this day, and it was a verse from 1 Samuel chapter 2 with the prayer of Hannah. She says, for this child I have prayed. I remember, I remember that in those places of barrenness that we were not alone in our prayers and our grief, and our yearning, but the Lord provided for us. Places of barrenness, he provided places of oasis within the body of Christ. And the Christmases of barrenness were finally transformed into days of abundance. Now for those of you in that season right now, you know, I, don't know, I don't know how it's going to turn out for you can't promise you that your journey will end by next Christmas or the next one or the next one. But I can say with confidence that along the way, we will be in those barren places with you, bringing you glasses of refreshing water in the gospel, reminding you that a day is coming in this life or the next when your heartache will be turned to laughter and your mourning will be turned into singing. But whether it's literal barrenness or simply metaphorical barrenness, 
that this text is talking about here. For some of us, our souls are parched. They're parched right now. Like a dry and weary land where there is no water. And my word for you this morning is that abundant days are coming. That abundant days are coming. That streams of refreshment and streams of life and beauty and majesty of Carmel and Sharon, the Lord is bringing those with him. And he will visit us in our barrenness, church. He'll visit us in our waiting. When he finally returns... And he will turn our barrenness into abundance. So we wait for those days. Second, God will transform our deficiencies into delight. Our deficiencies into delight. Look at verses 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And this is, again, an example of an already not yet, right? We've talked about this the last two weeks in this Advent season, already not yet. You know, it's not hard to remember the already when Christ came the first time. I mean, giving literal sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, strength to the lame, life to the dead. has already literally happened, still happens today. But this picture here in Isaiah 35 is prophesying a day coming at the end of the age when we, totally helpless to restore those areas of our lives that are broken, experience the transformation of our weaknesses into new abilities and new strengths. Again, solid ground to believe this transformation will be literal and metaphorical. Some of us understand what it's like to live with physical or cognitive disabilities. Some of us experience these firsthand. Other of us walk with those that experience these firsthand. So we experience them secondhand. Some of us know people who've lived with disabilities their entire lives. Others of us have watched disabilities develop over time in people. However you experience these things, they are are constant reminders that life is not as it should be. Right? Right? I mean, living with physical or cognitive disabilities or watching someone you love live with those struggles can be a joy killer, can it not? It's hard. I don't know if you are uh, familiar with the story of Joni Erickson Tata. Uh, Joni had a diving accident when she was 17 years old that left her a quadriplegic. She couldn't move any extremity from the shoulders down. Uh, She went from a vibrant, physically active teenager to being confined to a wheelchair, even to this day. She's 73 years old now. And in her autobiography, she writes about her battles with anger and with depression and with suicide during her days of being confined to this wheelchair, questioning even if God existed and if he did, why he allowed this to happen, or even if he still cared for her and loved her. But the Lord was gracious to her, And he allowed her to uh, learn skills and abilities that remind her of his care and his love towards her on a daily basis. And now 73 years old, still confined to a wheelchair and unable to move most of her body, I want you to hear what she said about her disability. It's going to be on the screen for you. It's a a longer quote, but I want to read it to you. She said, I always say that in a way, I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven with me. 
I know that's not biblically correct, but if I were able, I would have my wheelchair up in heaven right next to me when God gives me my brand new glorified body. And I'll then turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that wheelchair has been a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. The harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now, I always say jokingly, you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want. <laughs> then the real ticker tape pray, parade of praise will begin. And all the earth will join in the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to see the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we ever experienced on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus really will wipe away our tears. I find it so poignant that finally at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God will. That's amazing. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing to think about. And then metaphorically speaking, Jesus came to give spiritually blind eyes, spiritually deaf ears, spiritually dead people, new sight, new hearing, and new lives. Now for us who placed our faith in Christ, who were once blind, we now see, right? Any physical healing seen in this life is intended to communicate the deeper needs we all have of spiritual restoration. You know, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, fitting for this time of the year, Bob Cratchit, he comes home from church on Christmas Day after attending with Tiny Tim. They come home and Tiny Tim, as you know, is a child with special needs. Now he's lame in one of his feet. He walks with a crutch. Miss Cratchit asked Bob how Tim behaved in church. And Bob Cratchit uh, slash Charles Dickens responds perfectly. And he says, as good as gold and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much and thinks the strangest things you've ever heard. He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in church because he was a cripple and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. It's beautiful. God will transform our barrenness to abundance. He'll transform our deficiencies into delight. And then third, and this is where we're going to camp out a little bit, he'll transform our sorrow into gladness and joy. Our sorrow, our sighing, to use the verse, the words in verse 10, to gladness and joy. Read with me again verses 8 through 10. And a highway shall be there, shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. Thank the Lord, that's probably me. Uh, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isaiah gives us this picture of a road of a highway that the redeemed and ransomed are walking. These, these two words, redeemed and ransomed, 
you know, used in the scriptures to describe God's powerful and costly deliverance of his people. And these two words that find their roots in the Exodus story you know, of Egypt back in the book of Exodus and find their fulfillment in that first advent through the work of Christ. These two words that always have sacrifice associated with them. You know, redemption requiring the death of another, ransom requiring the payment of another. And in that first advent, Christ, in offering up his life on the cross in payment for our sins, provided the death we needed for our redemption. A sinless, unblemished sacrifice in exchange for the salvation of sinful, blemished people. And in his death on the cross, paying God the ransom we needed to be delivered from our bondage to sin and death, that is the, the, the thing, the event that consecrated the people on this highway, marching towards Zion, the holy mountain of God, our future final home. And this highway is marked by holiness, that the people on this road carry with them the primary distinguishing mark that was to be worn by God's people throughout the scriptures, purity, holiness, separateness, otherness, being set apart and different from the world around us. And there are no enemies on this road. Now the lion and the ravenous beast, all those that once intended to harm us, they're gone, removed by the Lord himself. No danger will be found here that could impede our approach to Zion. And that which we found most elusive in this life to hold on to, the joy and the gladness that oftentimes in this life feels like water dripping through our fingers, will now be the everlasting, never-fading crown upon our heads. And the sorrow and the sighing that we feel even at this very moment in this room, that will flee, it will run, it will vanish forever never to come back. So psalmist writes in Psalm 126, when the captives were brought back to Zion, our mouths will be filled with laughter, our tongues with joyful shouting. They'll say among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them and we will respond and say, yes, the Lord has done great things for us. And we're filled with joy. Joy and gladness. You know, I often think of joy and gladness. We often talk about it as something that's coming. You know, as I'm doing right now, it's, you know, true joy and gladness is coming. It'll eventually, you know, we talk about it like it'll eventually show up on our doorsteps. Like we just need to kind of wait around and trust the Lord's going to bring it, kind of twiddle our thumbs and be patient in the waiting until it gets here. And, and I do think there's a component of joy that is solely produced by the Holy Spirit in us. It's a fruit of the Spirit, right? That feeling and sense of deep contentment and trust, even in the midst of our darkest of days, like that can be produced in us by the Spirit. But at the same time, joy is a command in the Scriptures, right? I mean, how many times in the Bible do the writers call on us to rejoice or to be glad? I mean, Philippians 4.4, Paul writes, easy example, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I'll say rejoice. About to start singing the children's song. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I'll say rejoice. In other words, I command you to be joyful. And again, I command you to be joyful. But how do you do that? You know, how do you take an active role 
in this partnership with the Holy Spirit and producing joy in you. I'm going to give you three ways, three just really easy, not the really practical ways to come alongside the Spirit as He produces joy in you. You're working together to produce this in you. And so three ways real quick. One, joy comes in remembering the past. Joy comes in remembering the past. Feast of exa- a feast of Israel are a prime example of this. The people of God gathered for annual feasts to eat and celebrate all that God had done for them throughout their history. I mean, even in the midst of exile, they're still commanded to observe the feasts, particularly Passover, right? Because remembering the past work of God in your life and in the life of God's people produces in you trust that he'll continue to work for your good in the future. Just as God has delivered us in the past, so he will deliver us in the future. So we rejoice. That's why we eat. Another reason why we eat together a lot here. Not only do we just like food and hanging out, we enjoy those things, I do. But two, gathering around tables and communion with one another provides ample opportunities for us to reflect and remember the work of God together in each of our lives. And for those of us in desert places this holiday season, or really any season of your life, We must reflect upon the past together and remind one another of God's past faithfulness so that it will build upon and we will believe God's future faithfulness. That's why every single week when you come here to hear the preached word, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. I'm going to remind you every single week of God's love for us in Christ Jesus so that you can trust him for tomorrow. So we remember the past. Second, Joy comes in hoping for the future. Hoping for the future. That's what Advent is, right? Remember the past, first Advent? Look to the future, the second Advent, when Christ comes back. Looking to the past anchors our hope for the future. Joy is produced in us when we think on texts like today, like Isaiah 35 or Revelation 7 or John 14, these texts of future promise that are intended to produce hope in us and joy in us. We look at our current state we find ourselves in. We fall back on God's promises and grace in the scriptures of a coming future deliverance. And we have hope, again, that things will not always be this way. And it produces in us gladness and joy. But then third, yes, we look to the past. We look to the future. But between the poles of past and future lies the present. And joy comes in being thankful in the present. Being thankful in the present. Thanksgiving and gladness are two sides of the same coin. I find it very difficult for cynicism and thanksgiving to coexist. One usually kills the other. Our enemy loves taking something as beautiful and life-giving as the Christmas season, the season rooted in giving, ultimately the giving of Christ by God our Father to save us from our sins. Our enemy loves to take this season that should be full of life and joy and gladness and turn it into a season of comparison and scarcity. If I only had that, if she would only come to dinner this year, if I made a little more money this year, 
And on and on we could go, and the season of gratitude of what God has done has been replaced with a season of, about, of griping about what God has not done. And the way we fight this is to cultivate gratitude, to be a thankful people. Not a false thanksgiving, but truly taking time and reflecting on all the ways the Lord has been kind to us. I think of Mary, mother of Jesus, famous Magnificat, Luke chapter 1. Song of thanksgiving, she sings to the Lord. She says this, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Gladness, gratitude. Think about the prophetess Anna in that first advent, Luke chapter 2. Anna's married only seven years before her husband dies. She's now 84 years old, never remarried gave her life in service to the Lord and her widowhood, was at the temple every single day. That's what the text tells us. Praying for her people. She overhears Simeon, blessed Jesus, proclaiming the fulfillment of all God's promises in Christ of a Messiah coming. And her response is worship. It's rejoicing and gratitude for God's provision for his people. It's gladness and it's gratitude. And the common theme in this transformation The common theme in transforming barrenness to abundance, deficiencies to delight, sorrow to gladness is in verses three and four. God transforms us by coming to us. Transforms us by coming to us. Look at verse three. Hear the word of the Lord, church. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. If you have weak hands and feeble knees, listen to this. Verse four. Say to those who have an anxious heart, listen. Be strong. Fear not. Why? Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. He will come and save you. Behold your God as he comes to save you, church. Behold your God as he lies in a manger. Behold your God as he heals the sick, loves the outcast, strengthens the weak, raises the dead. Behold your God as he unjustly suffers without a word, has his flesh ripped off for your sin, bleeds out on a cross, demonstrating the heights and the lengths and the depths he would go to redeem you to the glory of God his Father. Behold your God, church, as he rises victorious over the grave, keys of death and Hades, In his hands, behold your God as he ascends to the heavenly places, taking his rightful seat at the right hand of his father, reigning and sustaining this world until the last enemy, death itself, is finally and fully put into its grave. Behold your God, Emmanuel Church, for he is coming again to save you. He's come once and he will come again. And with gladness and joy that fills his own heart, 
he will come to the people that he thinks of, that he thought of on that cross, and bring them the gladness and joy to wear for all of eternity. Your pain and your brokenness in this world now will be gone. Behold your God, for he's coming with redemption and restoration and transformation in his hands. This is our God. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for taking our deserts and producing oceans. We can recount the ways, oh God, this morning, even in this room, of the ways you've met us in our barrenness, you've met us in our deficiencies, you've met us in our sorrows, and you've transformed them into abundance, delight, and joy. Do it again. We need you to do it again. There's some heavy burdens being carried in this room right now. Heavy struggles and burdens that have weighed many of us down. Come visit us, oh God. Remind us of the past, remind us of the future, and give us the grace to be thankful now. You're so good to us and you're so kind to us and your kindness and your goodness and your mercy and your grace, they never cease and they never fade. Create in us hearts of gratitude. Hearts of gratitude for all the things you've done that we have not deserved and all the things you have not done that we did deserve. Create that in us now. As your redeemed and ransomed people, Father, may we be thankful for our redemption and for our freedom. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.